Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. Today we are continuing our summer sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, who was here last week? You remember that we talked about how when we say fruit of the Spirit, we're not talking about a banana or a grape or something like that. This word fruit is just talking about a harvest. It's talking about when the Holy Spirit is at work in your life because you're following Jesus, the stuff the Holy Spirit starts doing in you looks like love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And it's this amazing thing that we can't fake in our lives. And as we just grow and stay connected to God in the Holy Spirit, He just begins to do some amazing stuff in our life and produce these kinds of characteristics. How many of you would love to have your life defined by these things? People are just like, they're so loving. They're so gentle. They're so kind. They're so joyful. Uh, Man, they just always seem to to know that kind thing or that empowering, encouraging thing to say. They're so patient. Wouldn't that be a great way for people to describe you? Some of you are like, that sounds good. Others you're like, you sound like a chump now if you're gonna if you're gonna be that nice. That's okay. Uh, you don't have to be convinced yet. But we're going to continue today, and we're going to talk. We talked about love last week, and we're going to talk about joy this morning. So if you have a Bible, or you can Google this, or put it in a Bible app, it's Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 23. Just get used to this scripture passage. We're just going to read it every Sunday, all summer. It should be like super ingrained in your brain uh, by the time we get to the end of the summer. So would you read along with me from Galatians chapter 5 as my iPad decides it's going to have a mind of its own all of a sudden. Here we go. Let's read this together. It says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Just pause there for a second before we continue. Paul's talking about two natures, and he's going to talk about how like, we do things that we don't want to do, and we don't do the things we want to do. You ever feel like that? Like, I really want to exercise, but I don't feel like it, right? Those kinds of things. Or like, I really am going to read that book, I swear. And then it just sits there and collects dust. These like, re- like great intentions that we have. It's like, th- this is a little more uh, intense than, than those kinds of things, but it gives you an idea. It's like this struggle between our old sinful nature and the new life of the spirit that every one of us has access to in Jesus. So let's keep reading. We want to Let our lives be guided by the Spirit, not the old cravings of our old sinful nature. He goes on and says, The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting with each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you're directed by the Spirit... You are not under obligation to the law of Moses. Those are the lists of rules and behaviors. Do this, don't do that. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear, Paul says. This is what happens when you follow that that life. This is what comes out of your life. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, Envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there is no law against these things. You pray with me? Jesus, when we read a passage of scripture like that, it can feel really daunting. And it it can feel overwhelming, and it can feel like I'm just doing everything wrong. 
But I ask today, Jesus, that, that you would allow us to see that you are actually uh, cheering for us in this, that you are uh, on our side in this, and you believe that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live out this fruit that's described here. And so we, we just receive your grace in our lives fresh this morning, that this is your work that you are up to as we surrender to you, and we trust that you are, you are at work in each of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So, how many of you have ever used a phrase or heard a phrase like, well, just do what makes you feel happy? Anyone ever use a phrase like, roughly like that? Or you hear that phrase or like, I'm just not happy here. Whether it's a job or anything like that. You've probably heard that uh, we have a right, a fundamental right to happiness, right? We actually have founding documents in our country that say that among our rights that no one can deny that are true are we have a right to life, we have a a right to liberty, and a right to the pursuit of happiness. And gosh darn it, don't you keep me from my happiness. This is, I'm being a little facetious, but this this is something that's really kind of etched into our brains as Americans, probably more than anything else. We have a right to be happy. Do you believe you have a right to be happy? Sometimes I think I have a right to be happy. Sometimes if I'm being more spiritual, I'll be like, of course not. I just trust Jesus. But in reality, I think a lot of times I have a right to be happy. You might feel that way too. This is just etched into our brains as Americans. We want to be happy. If you have kids, you might be thinking a lot about your children's future. You want them to be happy. Who doesn't want that for their kids? That's a great thing to want for your kids. Or we tell a friend when they've got a really tough decision they've got to make. Listen, I want you to be happy. Do what you think makes sense. Do what's going to make you happy. Don't do something you're going to resent, right? You know, there are entire university programs that you can spend $40,000 a year on that teach you how to coach people in happiness. You can learn how to be a happiness coach with a four-year university degree. Isn't that amazing? I didn't know that existed. Uh, There are probably more books out there on how to be happy and satisfied than almost anything else that exists. And even in popular music, a few years ago, the hit song of the summer, Pharrell Williams sang, clap along if you know that happiness is the truth. We want to be happy. We're a culture obsessed with happiness. But is happiness actually worth pursuing? You don't have to give me an answer just because I'm a pastor and say, no, it's not. Like, Jesus is the only thing that satisfies me. I'm being a little sarcastic this morning. Is that coming across? I'm trying to be playful, and I I just feel like everyone's like, is he in a bad mood? That's okay. Um, But honestly, though, like, is happiness really worth pursuing? Is it? Do you ever question that? Do you ever ask the question of, like, is this actually good for me? Is this pursuit of happiness really a fundamental right that I want to die on the hill of? So studies actually indicate, and research has found, that uh, the pursuit of happiness is actually a terrible idea. Let me give you a couple studies' findings. There was one study that found that uh, the more importance a person places on finding happiness in life the more depressed and unhappy they will be. There was another study, this is really interesting, people were asked to read this fake newspaper article, and it was all about the the health benefits and and the long life longevity benefits of being happy. And and they read this whole article, and and, and then another group of people was asked to read the same article, but in place of happiness, they said, uh, the, the health benefits of making accurate life decisions. They just changed the, the wording. So the, get this. They were after that, they were asked to watch a funny video. The group that was told that things that make you happy, like watching funny videos, were, are going to increase your life expense expectancy. They're going to bring health benefits. That group of people that read this article and then watched the funny video, they were more likely to be less happy 
after watching that video than people who had no idea and were not primed to think about this as something that was beneficial for them. And then we could look at more studies that have found similar results, but pretty much across the board, uh, it's unanimous. When you try and pursue happiness uh, as a goal in life, you end up more depressed and more unhappy. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? Um, A term that's sometimes used to describe this phenomenon is something, I love this word, it's so nerdy and weird, something called the hedonic treadmill. And and hedonic just comes from the word hedonism, which just means comfort or pleasure, enjoyment. And and this, this pursuit of happiness gets called the hedonic treadmill. And basically what this is, you see like this like guy on a hamster wheel in the brain. Uh, this is what the hedonic treadmill is like. Imagine you're getting on a treadmill. You're trying to run to a certain destination, but you never get there because you're on a treadmill. And, and this is what pursuing happiness is kind of like. We're chasing a momentary pleasure. We're chasing, chasing a goal, uh, that new promotion, that job, that, uh, that thing that we believe is going to make us happy. We get that hit of endorphins or oxytocin, and it's really enjoyable. And then very quickly after that, we come down from that, and suddenly we realize, I've got to chase that next thing to get that same feeling again. And so we're on this treadmill constantly, but we're not actually getting any satisfaction out of life, and we're becoming more unhappy and more depressed. How many of you feel encouraged so far this morning? So what do we do if happiness is a problem. It it seems to me that happiness actually isn't something that's going to set us free, this pursuit of happiness. It seems to me that it actually enslaves us or imprisons us. We're staying trapped in this cycle of, I got to, I got to get more. I got to, I got to achieve more. I've got to find happiness. And again, I'm not saying it's always material. Some of us might have really good things like, uh, I want to have a happy family. I want to, you know, enjoy my relationships. But even in those relationships, how many of you know, like there's problems in relationships, even the best ones. There are moments when you are not happy in a really good family, in a really good relationship. And and so if we set that as the goal, we're still going to find ourselves really disappointed fairly often. So what do we do? What can we pursue besides happiness? What is available to us? So the second fruit or or, uh, characteristic that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit brings out of our life is joy. And and this is what I want to talk about to you today, with you today, is that joy is something that is, uh, we, we can take on in place of and over happiness. Joy is something that comes from deep within because of the work of the Spirit in us. It's not something we can produce on our own. It's a gladness, it's a lightness of heart in good times and in bad times. Uh, It's not a fake thing. It's not acting like problems don't exist. But but it's something that's coming from deep within us that gives us a lightness of heart uh, and and we're able to go through bad things, good things, no matter what, even if it's uncomfortable. And it's all because of this deep, unending grace from God himself in our lives. And that the words joy and grace in in the Greek language are actually like cousins. The the word's very similar. Uh, Grace is from the word uh, charis, and uh, the word kara is joy. So the joy is really an overflow or an outflow of receiving the grace of God in your life. It's a deep wellspring of life. It strengthens you no matter what is happening in your life. It allows you to walk through really difficult situations. Joy allows you to live beyond yourself and think about others ahead of yourself even when you don't feel like it. And it gives us an eternal perspective to know that the best is yet to come because Jesus is going to return and he's going to make all things new. So joy is coming from a really deep place, and we get to live in that grace, that joy today. So today, what I want to talk about is embracing joy over happiness. And there are three keys, uh, because I'm a pastor and sermons are always three points. Uh, There are three keys this morning for embracing joy over happiness. First, embracing, if we're going to embrace joy over happiness, we need to embrace salvation over self-reliance. 
We need to embrace obedience over options. And we need to finally embrace trials and troubles over temporary comforts. So you see, the, the, the church that, this passage in Galatians, the church that first read these words of Paul, they were in a culture kind of in some ways similar where, where happiness was held up as this really high virtue. And, and the way you knew you were happy was basically you're successful, you had a lot of money, you had a good family, you were influential, people respected you. So if you didn't have those things going for you, well, you weren't happy and you weren't living a good life. And, and, and so there's this mishmash, this motley crew of people in the church. Some were poor, some were wealthy, some had good family situations, some had bad family situations. They're not living in this place where they could say we're meeting this Greek ideal of happiness. And, and so they're here going like, how do we live well in this culture that's sending us all of these mixed messages about this is going to give you happiness and this is going to give you satisfaction? How do we live, Paul, in a place like that? And so Paul wants to present to them and he wants to present to you and I today a, a way that we can embrace joy over happiness and find freedom in that. So let's talk about these three keys to embracing joy over happiness. Are you ready? You can talk to me. It's okay. You can talk to me. First, we want to talk about this. If we're going to embrace joy over happiness, we need to learn how to embrace salvation over self-reliance. Salvation over self-reliance. Happiness gets defined by external circumstances. Uh, mostly it's things we've created for ourselves, right? If I work hard enough in my job, I earn enough money. If I do this, if I do that, uh, I am going to be happy. Uh, it, re- it involves a lot of reliance on ourself uh, instead of relying on God. So when we're looking for happiness, happiness is something where like, okay, I'm going to go out and make something of myself. I'm going to become influential. I'm going to make money. I'm going to have a great family. It's all kind of things that are within our control. Are you with me? And so when we're seeking happiness, we're looking to kind of create a favorable condition for our life on our own. Self-reliance. But joy isn't rooted in something we have control over, ultimately. Joy is rooted not in our outward circumstances. It's rooted ultimately in, in something that we can't produce ourselves. It's, it's ultimately rooted in our salvation, the saving grace of God in our lives. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent out his disciples to go heal the sick. He gave them authority. He's like, go pray for people to, to get well, go cast out demons. And, and then they came back and they were so excited because they were praying for all these sick people and they got well. They, they, their people had demons and the demons were being cast out. And they came back to Jesus and they said, even demons and people with illnesses, they, it obeys us in your name. It's amazing. And they're so excited and they're full of joy and they're celebrating this. And Jesus says this to them. It's really interesting. He says, those are great, guys. Keep praying for the sick. Keep praying seeing people get healed, uh, keep casting out demons. But he says this, don't rejoice. In other words, don't be full of joy because you're doing those things or those things are happening. He says, rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Meaning, you are in the book of life. You have received salvation from God. Not because of anything they've done, but because of the unmerited favor and grace that God had given them. So he's saying, listen, don't be full of joy because you did all of this cool stuff in my name. Be full of joy simply because you've received the grace of my salvation. This is really interesting. Jesus locates the origin of joy in our unmerited salvation. There's nothing you and I can do to earn this kind of joy, to gain this kind of joy, to walk in this kind of joy. It is totally due to our unmerited salvation. We can't do anything to earn it, even if it's stuff we're doing in Jesus' name. Think about that. You serve in this ministry, that ministry, you pray three times a day, you read your Bible. You could do all of those things, awesome things to do, things that help us draw close to God. But you could do all of those things in his name. And he says, your joy doesn't come from anything that you're able to do on your own. 
It simply comes from the fact that I have given you grace. I have saved you. Nothing that you can do to earn that. Receiving the grace of God through salvation means we're saying, I can't earn enough. It means we're saying, I can't prove that I'm good enough. It simply means I know that I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes to follow you perfectly. I don't have any of that, God. It simply means that, that we are receiving his grace and goodness with nothing to prove. How many of you feel sometimes like you have something to prove to someone? If you think about it for a little bit, you'll be like, I've I got to prove I'm responsible to my parents. Or I've got to prove that I'm able to take care of my kids. Or I, I've got to prove at work that I'm competent on the job. How often, because I find this all the time, believe it or not, pastors do, deal with the same stuff. Uh, how often do you feel exhausted from having to try and prove yourself and being worried, today, what if I'm not enough? Today, I made it through yesterday, but what if today I'm not enough? What if tomorrow I'm not enough? What if I'm no longer enough and then I'm just not loved? Think about when you first began to follow Jesus, if you, if you follow Jesus. Think about that. Think about the joy that you received in that moment. The, the moment of, I don't need to be enough anymore. Jesus has given me his grace just because he loves me, period, done, end of story. Think about the joy. If you, if you follow Jesus, think about the joy that you had in that moment. How long did that joy go on for? A day? A week? A month? A few years? 30 seconds? What happened? Do you still have that joy? Did it kind of fade a little? It gets different over time, the way you relate to God. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but, but sometimes I, I find in my own life that, that I am missing the grace, the joy of my salvation because I'm trying to make it too much about me. And I'm trying to live in self-reliance. And that's where I start to find myself feeling really depressed, unhappy, like I need to prove myself. Anyone else feel that way? You know what I'm talking about? Part of human nature for us is that we're incredibly forgetful. It's really easy to forget that salvation, that grace that God gave us, that unmerited favor, that simply, I love you, you don't have to prove anything to me, you're mine, God says. It can be really easy to forget that, and I think that's a lot of times where we begin to step out of the joy that's ours in our salvation. And we need to see that restored to us. Psalm 51, 12, David writes this in the psalm. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. How many of you need the joy of your salvation restored to you today? How many of you have like gotten a little bit meh? with following Jesus. You could admit it. I go through this cycle on like a weekly basis, I feel like. Sometimes multiple times a day. Get this. Do you know when David wrote this psalm and wrote these words? Do you know why he was asking God to restore his salvation? Because you might be thinking like, well, yeah, I would have my salvation restored, but it's, I've been pretty messed up. It's been pretty bad. Like, I, I think I need to clean up some things before I start asking God to do something good like that in my life. But, but here's the circumstances when David began to, to write this and when he prayed this. The, here's the context for him saying, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He, he had decided, he's the king at this point. Life is good, he's the king. And he decided one spring, because in this ancient time, this is when everyone went to war. God had called him to specifically conquer some areas and, and, and deal with some issues with some people in some places. And and. And he decided this year that he was just going to send his commanders off to war and he was going to stay at the palace. He was supposed to go and he didn't. And, and, and he didn't follow God's calling in that moment. He, he just let them go to war. He stayed behind. And, and he noticed one day as he's enjoying the comforts of being king, a woman that looked good to him on a rooftop next door. So he summoned her, seduced her. Not much she can do because in this culture he's the king. And then she reaches out to him shortly after to say, hey, I'm pregnant. 
my husband's out in, the, in that war that you didn't go fight in. This is not going to look good when he finds out. David freaks out. He's like, okay, this is like a soap opera. David freaks out, and he's like, okay, okay, I've got a plan. Uriah, her husband, come on back. I just want to reward your good behavior. Like, you've been such a great soldier fighting the good fight. I just wanted to give you a little respite, feed you well. He had a big feast for him. Why don't you go home, enjoy being with your wife for the night, and then go back the next day to war? Uriah's a man of integrity. He's like, I can't do that while these men are the front long and out on the front lines. And he sleeps at David's gate. He won't go back. Goes on for three nights. David's like, no, you have to go to your home. You won't do it. Eventually, he's like, this isn't going to work. So fine. He's like, great, Uriah. You're so, so great. You're so integrous. He sends him off. Uh, he's like figuring out how to cover this up. David's grand idea is he gives him a sealed note for the commander's eyes only. Can you give this to the commanders on your way back? And in the note was basically uh, orders to the commanders to say, put Uriah in the most intense part of the battle and then pull back from him so he's killed. That's how I'm going to deal with this. So Uriah dies. David sweeps in and is like, hey, there's this poor widow. I will take her into my home. I will marry her. He looks like such a nice guy until, uh uh-oh, one of God's prophets finds out and goes, hey, David, you kind of made a mistake here. And you know what? To David's credit in this moment, not, that, not to excuse what he had done, but he didn't get defensive. He didn't say, well, like, here's the situation here. He broke down. He cried. He wept. And he wrote the words of Psalm 51, begging God for forgiveness. And in that, he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I lost the plot. I was searching for my own comfort. I, I was looking uh, for a way to, to do this joy thing on my own, to find happiness on my own. And, and it hasn't worked. Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now, here's the thing about this. David cries out for joy. He repents of his sin. He, he asks for forgiveness. We, we desperately need that. But here's the thing. David's lack of joy, it didn't start there. It, it started before that. And that's going to take us to the second, the second point. But l- let, me, let me say this first. Uh, too, too often, I, I think, we, we are relying on ourselves for joy. We're relying on our own strength to, to find a way. David decides, I'm going to stay home. I'm going to find some comforts here as king, and it ends in destruction for him. We have too many messages in our our culture that are actually telling us, take the bull by the horn, find your own way to happiness. Uh, And and in David's case, as we see, it doesn't actually lead to happiness. It leads to destruction. And, And what we need is to recognize that in salvation, in God's unending grace is where we find our joy. We don't find it as we try and find our own path. So first, if we're going to find joy, we need to learn to embrace salvation over self-reliance. Second, we need to embrace obedience over options. I'm going to come back to Psalm 51 in just a minute. But obedience over options, what does that mean? We, we have to uh, live with a little bit of a different posture if we're going to experience God's joy. In, in Luke chapter 11, verse 28 Uh, People are are saying to Jesus, wow, these people that know you are really blessed. Your mom is so blessed. She's joyful. She's got to be full of joy and happiness because of of just being your mom. And, And Jesus says this. He says, more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. The people that are really joyful are the ones who are obedient. John 15, the the passage we read last week about staying connected to the vine. Jesus says this. He says, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things. Listen, this is why he told you these things, to stay connected to the vine, to remain in God's love. I've told you these things to obey my commandments so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Richard Foster uh, rightly connects joy and obedience uh, when he, he writes this. He says, only one thing will produce genuine joy, and that is obedience. He says, the old hymn tells us that there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust 
and obey. If you're familiar with that old hymn. As we trust uh, the Spirit, as we trust and surrender to His work in our lives, God, Jesus says that that is when we begin to experience joy. When we're obedient to what He's calling us to do, we experience joy. When we live solely focused on obeying what God has called us to, we find incredible freedom because we're not chasing other possibilities. We're embracing obedience over options. So I want to revisit this passage of Psalm 51. The first half says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And then David says, and make me willing to obey you. Joy originates in our salvation and it continues through obedience. So receiving God's grace, you didn't do anything for this, you have nothing to prove, joy. It continues day by day, step by step, as we remain committed to following Jesus. Obeying him over having other options. David's initial loss of joy, it wasn't, it didn't start, he didn't lose his joy when he had the affair with Bathsheba or when he killed Uriah. It started, he started to lose his joy when he started to say, I'm going to see if there's other options besides going out and fighting these wars as God's called me. How could I enjoy the comforts of being king right now? He chose to search for other options instead of obedience. And that's when the loss of joy entered his life. This is hard for me um, because I I deal with a little bit of an issue, and and maybe you have the same struggle. It's this thing called FOMO. Anyone get FOMO? Does anyone have no clue what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. Does anyone get the fear of missing out? Like, I want to go to this thing, but... I'm going to just say maybe I'll be there in case someone invites me to something better. Or, you know, I'm going to go and and pursue this career for right now, but I'm also interested in this. What if I get a better opportunity this way? I don't know what to choose. This is a huge struggle for me personally. Maybe some of you are better at this than I am, but I wrestle with FOMO very easily. Uh, We like to keep our options open generally. Uh, I, we often believe, I think I often believe, that the, the next option, maybe the grass is greener on the other side, there's more happiness over there. And so, like, I'm, I'm here, I'm kind of committed, but I'm like, that looks good. I might enjoy that better. Let's go do that. And, and what actually ends up happening, instead of creating happiness by keeping our options open, uh, we, we begin to fall into decision fatigue. Decision fatigue is what happens when you have to constantly decide what's next. Uh, It could be small everyday decisions, but it could be big life decisions. If you haven't fully settled, this is what I'm called to do, especially if you're following Jesus and saying, this is what Jesus has called me to do, this is how I obey him, then then you're going to be left with having to make decisions constantly, and that's actually really exhausting. The best thinkers and leaders in the business world, uh, executive consultants and everything like that, they will all tell you, you need to make the decision in advance before the problem or the circumstance or the situation ever arises. And then when you're faced with the problem, the situation or whatever, you've already decided what the answer is. This is how we handle these kinds of things. And it happens and there's no decision involved. You have zero decision fatigue because there's no question. We are going to do what we said we're setting out to do. There's no other options. Where they say is you need to avoid decision fatigue because it takes so much of your time uh, with decisions that you lose valuable time running your business, leading your teams, all these different things. So decision fatigue really messes you up. Actually having limitless options or opportunities can often keep you from embracing joy. Think about how many ads we get like for like so many options. Cars with unlimited features. There, there's so many things. More options are very appealing to us, but many experts will say, man, options actually exhaust you because you have to make decisions constantly about what you're going to pick and what you're going to do. I love the story of George Quam. Uh, at seven years old, he lost one of his arms uh, in a train accident. This is back in like the 40s, 50s. Yet he loved the sport of handball, and he was determined to play handball professionally. Apparently, you can play handball professionally. I didn't know that. But I love this story because he was going to do this despite only having one hand, one arm. 
So he eventually won the national championship in the 50s, and he had a 25-year handball career, and he was undefeated his entire professional career as a one-handed handball player. And he was once asked by a reporter, how on earth did you become so successful at handball when you had a disadvantage compared to everyone else? And he said, oh, that's an easy answer. I didn't have any options. I didn't have any options. See, he was so successful at handball because he knew when the ball was coming to him, he had to posture himself in a way that he could take the shot with his one good hand. He didn't have a choice. Whereas every other handball player didn't realize it, but they were having to make split-second decisions about which hand they were going to use, how they were going to approach the shot. And it actually gave him an advantage over his competitors because he knew exactly what hand he was going to use. He didn't have to make a constant decision. Now, I think usually I, and maybe you as well, we still like to live life following Jesus with two hands. I, I, I fall into this all the time. We've got our Jesus hand, and we've got our own plan hand. I've got my, all right, this is what God's called me to, and, and then I've got my, let's see what happens here. I'm going to dip my toe in, but I've got a backup plan. We like to hedge our bets, right? I like to hedge my bets. I wrestle with this all the time. When different situations come up in life, uh, we, we just get overwhelmed by options so easily and we're trying to figure it out. And, and often we, we find ourselves choosing, am I going to choose other options or I'm gonna, am I going to choose obedience to Jesus? And, and when we live with these two hands, we are actually robbing ourselves of joy. Where we're wondering, like, why am I not experiencing the joy of God in my life like I used to? Ask yourself, are you hedging your bets? Are you living with another hand? Are you living with options? You don't realize it, but it's causing you fatigue. It's slowing you down and it's robbing you of joy. So we must learn to embrace obedience over options. Finally, if we're going to embrace joy over happiness, we need to learn to embrace trials and troubles over temporary comforts. Now, if you're human, um, you don't like trials and troubles. Uh, I don't like anything uncomfortable, anything inconvenient. I have my plan. I like to stick to it. Uh, that, that is how I prefer to do things. It's just much more enjoyable for me and more convenient, right? Uh, but, but there's a secret that's found in following Jesus that's so critical. There's a secret that when we're experiencing troubles, when we're experiencing trials, but we're following Jesus in the midst of it, we actually can experience joy in the midst of those circumstances. How many of you could use some joy in some trials and troubles in your life? I know I can. Look at this. In uh, 2 Corinthians Paul's writing about people who are experiencing, this is a church that's experiencing trials and troubles. He, he's writing to this church in Corinth and he's telling them about another church somewhere else. He's like, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through churches in Macedonia. They are being, look at this, tested by many troubles and they are very poor. I thought that was the troubles and the testing, but apparently it's got, it gets worse. They are tested by many troubles, and they're very poor. But they are also filled with what? Abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. This church in Macedonia, actually, Paul asked, hey, I know you're poor, but would you consider giving a gift to the church in Jerusalem, which was even more poor than anywhere else in the Roman Empire? And here was this really poor church, and they gave above and beyond what churches like Corinth were giving. And Corinth was very wealthy. Very wealthy place. And Paul's here, he's kind of like poking and prodding a little bit to like, he's, he's not really into the comparison game, but he's like, guys, you need to wake up to what really matters here. They're experiencing crazy troubles, crazy trials. They're super poor. But you know how much joy they have? They have so much joy that they just gave this crazy gift 
to this other church that needed it more than they did. That's one way joy can express itself. In, in James's letter to the church, he wrote this, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Maybe you already think that you're perfect and complete, needing nothing. But for those of us who are not yet perfect and complete, needing nothing, how many of you were like, this is a good goal. I would love to get there. I want to be perfect and complete, needing nothing. I feel no lack in my life. I have so much love to give to people. I have so much patience for when difficult things come up in life. How many of you want to be in a place in life where you are feeling perfect and complete, needing nothing? James says, here's how you get there. When troubles and trials of any kind happen, you need to consider it pure joy. Consider it an opportunity to be excited and full of God's joy. What? That sounds like the biggest load of garbage. That's the church word because we're in church and we're recording for a podcast that I'll say right now. That is the biggest load of garbage I've ever heard. How is that even possible? There is something to this that is so simple and so profound and it's, it's so difficult even though. That, that in the hardest situations, in the hardest moments, we actually can be strengthened when we do it in the joy of God. We can be strengthened to, to a place where eventually, James says, we become perfect and complete, needing nothing. It will strengthen our character in such a profound way that we will be mature beyond our years. Now, I'm sure many of you have had hard things happen in your life. Have the hard things changed you? They change all of us. The question is, is are they going to change you for the better or change you for the worse? How are they going to change you? And it is in Jesus that we are able to endure situations, trials, troubles with joy. And these hard situations change us for the better. A lot of times, though, it's much easier to avoid the trials. It's it's much harder to consider this an opportunity for great joy and just go through the trial. It's a lot easier to just like, I'm just gonna scroll on my phone. I don't know what I'm looking for on Facebook or Instagram, but I'm gonna find it. And you just scroll for hours or let's watch another movie or let's just have one more drink or let's just watch one more show or you know what, I'm going to work out a little more excessively than I would normally. Or let's go shopping, I've got an urge to shop. Or whatever the urge might be. You know what, you might even go, let's go do more stuff at church and get more involved. That'll help me with the pain. It doesn't matter how we choose to medicate or cope or mask pain and trials and troubles in our life. Uh, they are all unhelpful and they're temporary fixes. And instead of learning how to embrace these challenges in all of our lives with joy from the Lord, we we become weak and kind of anemic as we medicate and mask the pain and cover it with temporary comfort. We're very pain-avoidant people, and it can cause us extreme problems if we let that go perfect illustration I think that helps explain this there was a in the early 90s there was an experiment called um, biosphere 2 anyone know about biosphere 2 no any nerds just when it was getting good. Um, Half of you are asleep, don't lie. Uh, Biosphere 2 
was was this um, three over three acre kind of insulated ecosystem, and they were they were trying to figure out if they could uh, create a completely self contained ecosystem so they could colonize like the moon, Mars, all these different things. So it was sealed off from external oxygen, everything. They had all sorts of different kind of ecosystems, plant life, all this stuff. It's kind of crazy. Go look it up if you're a nerd. Most of you don't care. That's fine. It's a great illustration though. Uh, so scientists lived in there for like two years, and they were going to try and make this work. And, and one of the things that they found found in this biosphere too was that the trees grew at a really rapid pace like trees were growing very very fast in this two-year period except one problem they would get to a certain point where their height and their weight uh, would actually cause the the tree to collapse on itself and it would just fall to the ground and what they learned was because they were insulated in this ecosystem from the wind the wind wasn't pushing on these young little saplings, these young little trees. And it didn't, so they couldn't create any what's called stress wood. Stress wood is, is uh, needed for every single tree. Every massive tree you see is started as a young, small tree through, through stress wood. As the wind blows on it, it learns how to cope in the resistance. And it learns how to be strengthened as it faces that wind. And it causes the tree as it grows to be able to sustain and hold its own weight and be strong enough to hold its own weight. This is such a great picture for what God wants to do in each of us when we face trials and troubles. When, when we are ready to embrace the wind it's going to stress us, but when we are doing it in Jesus, it's actually helping us build and grow in strength, causing us to grow up into complete perfection. A strong, mature tree. But listen, often I think what we do when we face trials and troubles is we run into our biosphere because I don't have to deal with resistance there. I don't have to deal with pain there. I don't have to deal with anything. But unfortunately, we collapse on ourselves and we destroy the very thing that we're hoping to protect. You have not been designed to be shielded from trials and troubles. You have actually been designed to grow stronger in Jesus in the midst of trials and troubles. Did you know that? You have been designed. Think about this. God created you. I don't want to call people out and embarrass them, but I just like want to tell you personally, each of you, God created you to, with him, endure any kind of trial and trouble. doesn't matter what it is. You could have caused the problem, or it could be happening to you. There is something for you to grow in in that. And so that's why James says, you need to consider this an opportunity for joy because you are about to grow and strengthen in a way that you could not if you did not face this kind of resistance. It's, oh, you're, you're in trouble now? We, we need to change the language in church, right? Because like, we don't want to be curmudgeon like, well, I'm in another trial and trouble. But what we need is people that are not trying to like dismiss the pain because this stuff still hurts. That's part of why it helps strengthen us. Not dismiss the pain, not invalidate the pain, but, but to come alongside each other when there's really painful things happening and say, how do you see Jesus moving in the midst of this? Once they've gotten it all out and they've processed and they've whined and complained, because we need people to help us with that. And we've gotten to that place where we're like, okay, thanks, I vented. Then you can be like, can I ask you a question? Sure. How do you see Jesus strengthening you in this? Where's the opportunity for joy right now? Some of our circumstances were like, there's zero opportunity for joy right now, pastor. But the truth is that when you face trials of any kind, there is something that God wants to do as you find it as an opportunity for joy. It's gonna grow you in joy. It's gonna make you stronger. This is why the scriptures say that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. 
Resistance doesn't have to destroy you. Resistance can actually make you stronger as you celebrate and stand in the joy of the Lord in those moments. Happiness promotes weakness. Joy promotes strength. Pursuing happiness will promote weakness in your life. But pursuing joy is going to promote strength. So as we close, the team can come up here. I just want to be really clear. Embracing joy over happiness does not mean that you become a curmudgeon. It's quite the opposite. It doesn't mean you're Oscar the Grouch now or you're grumpy. You live in a grace that makes you lighthearted and glad. You're not forcing this. You're not producing this on your own. You're not faking it like, I gotta be joyful. It's not what we're talking about. This is something deep within that the spirit is producing in you. You can't produce this on your own. But surrender to him. So what do you need to surrender? Is there self-reliance you need to surrender? And you need to take up salvation. Is there too many options? You've got two hands and you need to get rid of one of them and not have any options anymore, only obedience. Do you keep running to those temporary comforts instead of embracing and celebrating with joy what God's doing in the midst of trials and troubles? When we embrace salvation, obedience, and trials, we actually are embracing joy. And that's where we find true freedom. Amen? Let's stand before we worship. sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.